that feeling of adrenaline rush, being trapped in a room with people until 4 a.m. and the the experiences and bonds and memories shared with that and the feeling of getting a good win or taking a great witness or whatever it is, that, that'll always be a, a highlight. But but that and just the, the relationships that are formed when you're kind of in the trenches at a law firm. Hi, I'm Hallie Ritsu. And I'm Allison Friedman. And this is Personal Jurisdiction. A podcast where we get personal with lawyers about their journeys before, during, and after law school. Join us for season four as our guests share their reflections on the highs and lows of how they got to where they are today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Personal Jurisdiction. We are so excited to welcome Lisa Hydosti into the podcast today. Lisa is a senior director of healthcare compliance at Walgreens in Chicago, and she has been at Walgreens for almost two years. She started as senior counsel in the government litigation group and then shifted to healthcare compliance in January of this year. Prior to Walgreens, Lisa was a partner at McDermott, Will & Emory in Chicago, where she focused her practice on commercial litigation and white-collar investigations. Lisa is a 2009 graduate of the University of Michigan, where she earned her BA in economics. And Lisa is a 2012 graduate of the University of Michigan Law School. And Lisa and I were colleagues at McDermott, and I was always really inspired by Lisa because she just seemed completely unflappable. She gave great advice. She had some really cool experiences while she was at McDermott. So I'm personally excited to get to catch up with her and learn a little bit more about her journey to the law. And I know she's going to have a lot of great advice for our listeners too. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So Lisa, this is something I don't know about you. You were an undergrad at Michigan and then went to law school at Michigan. I know you're from Michigan, but why did you decide to go to law school? Well, I decided to go to law school for the reason that you probably shouldn't decide to go to law school, which (laughs) is, you know, I graduated in 2009 when the job market was really bad and I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do yet. I knew that I liked writing and that I was good at writing. I knew that I liked problem solving. And so I thought, hey, why don't I go to law school? You know, I didn't, I think that nowadays, by and large, I think students do a better job of like getting legal experiences before going to law school. I didn't, I just thought, hey, let's do it. Maybe I'll like being a lawyer. Maybe I won't. I think I could be good at it. So that's really why I went to law school. Not the best advice I would say for others, but it it worked out for me. But I think too, I mean, it, goes to show because I you're a great lawyer that you don't necessarily have to have the best idea of exactly what you're going to be doing. You had the sense that you're a great writer. That was one of your skills that you like to problem solve. I mean, I think those are two things that serve you well going into law school and then going into being an attorney. So I'll give you some credit for that. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But no, it's so hard for college kids to know exactly what they want to do with their career when they're 20, 21, 22 years old. So I think I think the, the best way to do it is the people who take a couple of years, like, 
be a paralegal at a law firm, work for a judge, whatever the case may be, just to kind of get a sense of, oh, yeah, you know, I think I, I really want to be a lawyer and do it that way. Because you went straight through and didn't necessarily, I'm guessing, didn't necessarily know what law school is going to look like. When you got there, were you surprised by certain things in the way the way that law school worked? Or did you have some sort of like background, either family or friends or other people who were lawyers? So you had a sense of it going in. I didn't really, my immediate family don't have any lawyers. So I guess I was maybe surprised in a sense, but I mean, it's a fairly academic environment. It wasn't that much of a departure, I would say from undergrad. I mean, there's certainly some uniqueness to it, right? The what is the Socratic method, right? Where you where the professors just cold call you. That's new and novel, I suppose. But otherwise it's 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 kind of similar to laws. I mean undergrad. It's digesting material and spitting it back out in a way that makes sense. So I didn't find it to be that much of a leap or culture shock from my undergraduate experience. I'm curious what were your favorite aspects of law school, like things that you participated in outside of the classroom. Obviously, everyone has to take certain one-all classes, like that's kind of a formula to things. But once you got to choose, okay, here are the things that I want to do, what things were sort of the the most memorable for you and or things that might have led you in a particular direction towards the career path you've taken today? Sure. So I did participate in a couple clinics that Michigan ran and I think still runs. One was a child advocacy clinic where we helped kids in court. And I, I actually had a an in-court experience. I think I did a hearing or something. I can't remember exactly, but it was really cool to actually see a case through and, and engage in a litigation process. And granted, the litigation that I did at McDermott couldn't have been more different than the family law setting. But there was a lot that actually is transferable, just about reviewing a court standing order and attention to procedural details and, and following a process. So couldn't be more different from a litigation substantive standpoint, but understanding the process, the procedure, super important, super relevant to what I later did out of law school. Similarly, I also worked again in the family law setting during my summers and then continuing through the through the school year. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Like the family law center, maybe, where we represented survivors of domestic violence and abuse. And a really tough job, honestly, just due to the nature of it and feeling for your clients. But again, even though the substance of it was so different, I think it helped as far as case management, even client communications. Clients couldn't be more different, but just have it, you know, being attentive, thinking about what they need, what they need to hear for a case. It all it all translates. It's all relevant for law firm corporate practice too. You said during law school, did you ha- have a sense of the dichotomy between litigation and transactional law? Did you ever think about doing anything other than litigation? How did you decide litigation was for you? Yeah. I wonder if that's changed at all. I think that back when I went to law school in 2009 to 2012, it was very much, it was straight up 
litigation or transactional, mm-hmm. litigation or transactional. There was no, what if you want to be a tax lawyer? Like it was so focused on those two avenues. And then even beyond that, the whole nature of law school was all geared towards litigation. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're reviewing case opinions. You are digesting those, you're issue spotting. And so I never really considered transactional only because I did view my strengths to be more of like reading, writing, advocating, those those more traditionally litigation focused skills. That said, I don't I don't know. I still, you know, 11 years into practice or whatever I am, 10, I still don't deeply understand what transactional lawyers do maybe <laughs> maybe I'd really love it I don't know but no I just I, I kind of just followed that traditional hey you know if you if you like writing if you like reading if you like getting up and standing and talking in front of a judge be a litigator and mm-hmm. so I was like okay I'll be a litigator I think you're picking up on something really interesting, which is just that you sort of innately, it sounds like, gravitated towards litigation because your strengths were really sort of like fit into that space. And I think that's something that students a lot of times can can question like their judgment about like, oh my gosh, should I be going transactional? Should I go be going litigation? Should I do something totally different? And aren't necessarily connecting with, okay, here's actually what I'm really good at, like at baseline and what might make sense for me to go into practice with. And we like to encourage students to try out a lot of different avenues. And that's another way to kind of figure out, hey, what's a good fit for me? But it sounds like you had a really good sense of like, here are the skills that I can bring to bear in a, in a particular type of career and kind of like just just followed that thread. I had kind of a similar path and Hallie and I talk a lot about like what is transactional law and like in that space <laughs> and similar to you, I am still figuring that out. Hallie has very much helped me to understand more about that, but I had kind of a similar situation, but I don't think I realized at the time that I was following that path because those were sort of inherently my strengths. And so I think helping students to really sit down and almost like write down, hey, here's what I'm really good at. Here's what might connect with that going forward is something that can actually be pretty helpful. Totally. And I do think, and you know, I don't, I don't work at a law school. I don't know, but my general sense of things from talking to younger associates that come in the door, speaking with others, I think law schools are doing a much better job of giving opportunities for their students to just get exposed to like different areas of the law. And I think that is really great and for the students benefit so they can maybe you know connect with a clinic where they're helping small businesses with their formation doc whatever the case may be so that they can just have a better idea of what some other areas of practice look like because there's not that many tv shows of people sitting at a desk doing deal work a little less interesting than suits or whatever so so people just like don't know as much. So I think it's good that that those opportunities exist more now and that students hopefully take advantage of them. Yeah. And I mean, there are many practices, my own included, where there is a, a mix of what we would consider litigation and transactional skills. And so I agree with you. I think law schools are doing a better job of providing opportunities for students to be more aware of what it means to work in, in these different avenues. And hey, that's what we're trying to do on the podcast too. <laughs> So Lisa, you were a summer associate at McDermott and then you worked there after law school. Why did you decide to go to a firm after law school? 
I decided to go to a firm after law school because, well, two-pronged. Number one is there's just a whole infrastructure at law schools to, yeah. to set up. To The law schools come on campus and they set up their little tables and there's momentum towards yeah. going to a law firm. That would be prong one, if I'm being brutally honest. Mm-hmm. Prong two was, and I think this is right, is I thought it would be the best way to get a lot of good experience right off the bat. And then if I ever wanted to do just something different, I could pivot later after getting my experience at that law firm. And then yeah. it would be easier to do something different after being at the big law firm versus trying something and then later saying, actually, no, I want to work at an international law firm. I think it's much more difficult to do the flip side. And so I thought, let's try it, see if I like it. If I do, wonderful. If I don't, then I'll have this foundation to go somewhere different. And and I think, I think that's a good way to look at it, frankly. And I think that I've honestly been surprised. I, I was heavily involved in recruiting at McDermott and I, I talk with people, I, I, I share notes with others. And I think that it's, it's interesting how far having some of that law firm, that big international law firm experience can carry you. And that mm-hmm. people like years down the road will still look at me like, oh, wow, that person went to Skadden. Like it provides some instant credibility and whether that's fair or not is entirely up for debate but I think that is the reality of the matter and so I think that obviously if you don't want to work at a law firm don't work at a law firm and you know that's clear but if you're thinking about it or if you think you want to maybe one day be there or even just get good training and good experiences and good connections I think it's a, a solid way to go early in a lawyer's career. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Lisa, because it is a reality of this industry. And it's certainly something that's helped me in starting my own firm. I mean, if I didn't have the background from McDermott that I have, it, I don't think I would get the clients that I'm able to get right now. So for that reason and many other reasons, that was a great place for me to start my career that credibility, it is some sort of reverence that people have for the work that's done by these larger firms. So I'm glad that you shared that because that is a reality of how things work. I also just want to give a shout out to your two-pronged approach, a true litigator. (laughs) (laughs) Right there. I was like, yes, I hear that. Feel free to treat us as judges. I have yet to answer a question with it depends. (laughs) Okay. All right. Fair (laughs) enough. We'll we'll get to that, I'm sure. (laughs) So you said you were heavily involved in recruiting. And so I'm curious if you did sort of on-campus interviews or callback interviews, things like that. What were the things that you were really looking for, right? This is a space where students have like 20 minutes or maybe a little bit longer when meeting with each partner, you know, in a callback interview. What kinds of things were you looking for when you met students? You know, we've heard a lot of sometimes guests have said like, it's just a feeling or things like that, which is like, you know, sometimes that that might be the reality. But if there are concrete things that you were really looking for in the interview setting, either those initial sort of OCI interviews or the callback interviews, I'm curious about that. 
Sure. So I would say it was the same. I, I did all of the above. And for all of them, I would say you would be surprised at how far an engaged presence, good eye contact, sitting up in your like, the, like those things that that signify to me, at least someone who is eager and will have that courtroom client presence, that went a really long way. And you might think that that is just a baseline. It's really not. So I would say that was a big one. The candidate's ability to carry on a conversation. Another thing you might think is a baseline. Not so. So here's, here's an example. You know, they, they would, they'll, they'll ask a question and I'll answer it. And then they just like kind of just completely move on. And But my answer is one that invites follow-up and it could invite engagement if I felt that they were really interested in having a conversation about it as opposed to just ticking a box of, oh, okay, I'm supposed to ask the person that's interviewing me a question or two or just answering a question in, like in the lowest common way and then just staring blankly, right? Like there's a, there's a way to engage better that I think the top candidates really shared. Mm-hmm. Though I would say those are a couple big ones that, that that come to mind off the top of my head. I mean, I, you know, grades, obviously everyone talks about law school grades, law school grades, law school grades, and certainly they are important. The way that I viewed it and the, the way that I think a lot of people viewed it was more of like a here are the grades that you need to get in the door. Like if you clear whatever the number is and it changes all the time and I don't even know how law school is graded now. I feel like kids have like 6.0s. But whatever like <laughs> this, you know, your recruiting office where it says, okay, here's – that if they hit that, then I don't care so much about their grades anymore. And like of course if someone has all A's, I'm going to be a little more intrigued because clearly they have academic aptitude and perhaps that will translate. But if students think that we're looking at two people and think, oh, I really like this person – they only had a 3.5. This person was, eh, but they had a 3.6. Zero firms are going to go with the candidate that has a 3.6 over the candidate that they like better and has the 3.5. So yes, we looked at grades. Of course we did. But it was more like, okay, do you have this baseline academic achievement? Great. Now let's talk and let's see how you would fit in in our group. That's helpful. And that's certainly something that students going into the interview process can practice. I like how you said it's not just checking a box about, okay, I asked a question. The career services told me I had to ask a question. It's about really engaging with your interviewer on a more human level, showing genuine interest in knowing how to do that, because those are the types of things that you do with clients as well. Totally. You know, they know that they have the smartest lawyers because they're hiring (laughs) firms and paying a lot of money. But there's a difference between that and them actually being forthcoming with you, liking you and trusting you. And those are the types of softer skills that you can build that will allow you to do that with clients too. So I want to talk a little bit about your time at McDermott, Lisa, before we shift over to your current role. You were there for almost 10 years, including almost four years as a partner. And again, I will tell you, I always viewed you as the, (laughs) like, okay, if I can just kind of be a fraction of what Lisa's doing, then I'll probably be okay. But what are some of the highlights from that experience for you? I know you had a number of trials, including as an associate. Just love to hear kind of your reflections about that experience at the firm. 
Sure. So I loved my time at McDermott. I really did. I don't have a, a negative word to say about it. Well, if I did have a negative word to say about it, it would be applicable to working at a large law yeah. firm in general. So highlights of my experience at McDermott, I would say, I, I think I got thrown in real fast and that was exciting. So I was taking depositions as a second year associate. I was helping with trials, actually as a first year associate too. So I think some getting some of those big on your feet experiences early on was huge for me. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed just some of the, the connections that I made there, many of which carry through to today yeah. of just learning from really solid partners and senior associates and becoming friends with them as well as colleagues. I'll say, I'll say this. I'm not sure that I would have stayed at McDermott as long as I did, if not for those human connections mm -hmm. with other partners and associates there. I really enjoyed the mentoring aspect of being a partner at McDermott and trying to take associates under my wing where I could and, and give them experiences as well and, and just kind of be a sounding board. That was a fundamental aspect of my time there. So yeah, I mean, trials were, you always remember the trials and that feeling of adrenaline rush, being trapped in a room with people until 4am and the, the experiences and bonds and memories shared with that and the feeling of getting a good win or taking a great witness or whatever it is that that'll always be a highlight. But, but that and just the, the relationships that are formed when you're kind of in the trenches at a law firm. I'll ask you a little bit more specifically, because I feel that a little bit of, of it is luck, right? What are the cases that happen to be going on when you join? I think about some of the experiences I got just good or bad because I was there late or on a Saturday or in the morning and just happened to be the human that was around. But why do you think you were successful as a law firm associate and as a law firm partner? So something that you just said, I don't think is luck, number one. So I think physically being there and query what that means in 2023, but I think that's huge. I mean, here's what I'll say. And I think it changes as you go on. As a junior associate, I think the number one thing that you can bring to the table is your attitude and being there and wanting to work and wanting to learn, wanting to build relationships is huge. And so, and I think it all snowballs on itself. So, so number one, people want to work with the junior associates who, who seem like they want to learn. And then once those associates get those experiences, so, so for example, I was taking, I was taking depths as a, as a second year, right? So then once I, once I was doing that, then other partners or other clients would then feel more comfortable in there in giving me more opportunities. Was like, okay, well, I've already done it, so you know, so it's okay. And I think that really builds off of itself. And and some of it is luck. Some of it's the firm. Some of it's the the group. I have friends I went to law school with. Where I remember, you know, as sixth or seventh years posting about, you know, I just did my first hearing. Where I'm like, oh boy, that's a long time. And it's and it's you know, it's nothing against them whatsoever. It's just like different 
it, it can depend on the firm is, is what I'm trying to say there. But so I think to be successful as a junior associate, I think you want to be there and be willing and, and being saying yes to the additional work. And I think there's a lot of discussion as there should be for sure about work-life balance and boundaries and all that. And I think that as I progressed at McDermott, I frankly got really good at setting boundaries. And that was something that I learned and prioritized. But I will say that when you are first learning to be a lawyer, your first, second, third year, whatever it is, to the extent you are physically, emotionally capable of doing more, you should do it for like many, for for your own self-interested reasons, frankly, because you're going to learn more and get more experiences. You know, the, the associate who's billing 1500 hours a year is just simply going to be exposed to less than the associate billing 2000 hours a year. It's just Mm -hmm. the reality. And as everyone knows, the things are, are the hardest when you've never done them before. The first time you're doing something as simple as drafting affirmative discovery, it's going to be so much harder than once you've done it more. So for associates own benefit, they should try to get exposed to different projects, get exposed to different people, get exposed to different clients. It's huge. And then I think once you've built up that foundation of experience, of relationships, and frankly, of cachet, of of people that you work with understanding, oh, okay, Hallie, Hallie wants to be here. Hallie wants to learn. Hallie wants to be the best associate she can be. I think then at that point, you get to be a little bit more of a master of your own time and schedule. And and I will, you know, say that, of course, there's, you know, it's, we're in a service industry. And if you're at a major law firm, you're you're like, you're just, you're never going to work nine to five. Obviously, that's just not possible. But I think that you can draw more boundaries and you've kind of earned, you've like paid your dues, so to speak, right? In a certain sense. So again, I, I'm I'm absolutely not advocating for like, oh yeah, bill 2,700 hours. I've never done that. I would never do that. It sounds awful. But to the extent that you feel that you can do your best work and manage your your life outside work, which is super important, I I think that young associates should take on those early opportunities. And I think it'll build off that once people understand that you are, that you want them. So, okay, so that's a big one. Responsiveness. Okay, this is another thing where you think of it as just table stakes. Not, Not necessarily. So I think, you know, it's a service industry and people will benefit greatly by responding to emails fast. And and now now we're getting into minutiae, but I'll say that even just like the, even just the got it, you know, like the received email, yeah. I think that goes a long way. So even if you're tied up, like just say, hey, got it. I'm on it. Or like, hey, sounds good. I'll turn to this tomorrow. Like, lovely. Don't just let it sit and linger in the abyss. So that's another one. I just want to pick up on a couple things you've said, because this is all resonating with us. Like Hallie and I are smiling so big. If you could see, (laughs) our listeners could see right now. I am constantly trying to harp with my students on just the like, got it email. I think it's just one of those things where I'm like, I don't know if you've read the email or not. And so if you just say, yes, I've received it, I'm like, oh, great. Okay, we're on the same page, right? And I think that just the little things like that can go so far. 
I also just want to back up to the boundaries discussion for a second, because I think you were saying something so important, which is that essentially like boundaries are going to look really different when you're a first year associate than when you're a seventh year associate. And then of course, when you're a partner, because you're in a different sort of position. And I think a lot of times these days, conversations I have around like wellness and work-life balance, of course, as you said, so important. But I think that sometimes when you start off at a law firm, recognizing that your sort of day-to-day is just going to look so different when you first walk in that door, or I guess it should look so different, right, than when you're a seventh-year associate. So, of course, you need to have work-life balance. But at the same time, as you said, like the boundaries that you're drawing are not going to be, oh, I need to leave at 5 p.m. every single day. And if you are drawing that line and that's what you want to do, that's obviously a personal preference, but you're not going to get those opportunities, as you said, like showing up, being interested in the work and building those connections with people, I think is so huge, as you said. And that ties, I think, into the the piece that you brought up initially about OCI, right? Like it all starts with the human connections, the presence, the being engaged, like right out of the gate in that OCI interview. That translates to like, are you excited coming in the door as an associate? Like, do you want to have some of those late night experiences? You're not going to be a trial lawyer and not have late night experiences. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is the reality of the situation, right? And that's where you get those experiences. And I think sometimes like that is just lost in the the current environment. So I love that you're bringing that up because I think it's just something, I don't think we've actually talked about that on the podcast before. And it's like hugely important, just the shifting nature of boundaries over a career and Mm -hmm. not like looking to a seventh year and being like, why is that person going home at five? Right. Who knows? They might be like putting their kids down and getting back online. First of all, like you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But also just you want to have mentors and people who you look up to, but know that like what they're doing is going to look a lot different than what you're doing as a first year associate. Yeah, totally. And I and I think that putting in that time as the as a first year is going to pay off like down like even years down the road. And I'll also say that like you're going to get more investment from your mentors at the firm if you convey your excitement to learn and be there and and help out in any way you can on a case team or deal team or whatever it is. They like, they like that. And so they're going to want to work with you more. And so again, it's just like all kind of builds off of each other Mm -hmm. itself. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit only in the interest of time, not in my lack of ability to make human conversation. (laughs) But I would love to shift over to your experience at Walgreens, Lisa. And can you tell us why you decided to leave the firm and go in-house? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, as I said, I really liked McDermott. Yeah. And so I had the luxury of kind of taking my time to to wait for a good opportunity. I Around maybe my eighth year or so there was when I started thinking that I wanted to try going in-house. I think the main driver for me wanting to make that transition was really to get more towards working out practical solutions and more away from the day-to-day adversarial grind of litigation. That is just the nature of litigation. Even your best relationships with opposing counsel are adversarial by nature. And for me, it was never like the hours that ground me down. It was more this like constant 
low level and then sometimes spiking to higher level stress of, you know, it's 8 p.m. and you get a nasty gram from opposing counsel. And then it's like the night is just derailed or you get the response brief and for a while there could be like some excitement to, you know, take it down or apply to it. And then as I progress later on, it just, as the excitement shifted more towards, you know, the constant adversarialness, I, I suppose, is really what made me think that I might want to explore going in-house. I liked the idea of becoming an expert in my client or my industry. So at McDermott, I had the great pleasure of having a really broad practice and working with a lot of clients. And I loved a lot of aspects of that. There would sometimes be, I would work on something totally random. Like I remember, I don't know, maybe it was a fourth year, I was working on some litigation involving highway signage, like the big green, huge yeah. highway signs. And I found myself reviewing schematics and, you know, manufacturing specs for the big highway signs. And I, I thought it was cool. I was like, this is like, where has my life taken me that I'm yeah. doing a deep dive <laughs> into highway signage? And that happened all the time. It was kind of this ran- one random example, constantly. And so it was fun, right? Like I liked learning about new things, new clients, but, you know, as time went on, I was like, you know, I want to be an expert in and narrow my scope of expertise and knowledge. And I thought going in-house would be a great way to do that. I like the human aspect more of like counseling business partners and, and managing litigation at a higher level rather than being in the trenches of everyday yeah. litigation. So that was my main thought process and starting to look for opportunities in-house. I like that you raise the the issue of that constant kind of low level stress that comes with litigation, even when you like it, even when you enjoy responding to those whatever crazy requests or coming with the best takedown argument, there is a constant kind of stressful nature to it that, that can be difficult long-term to deal with. So there's been a view that it's more difficult to go in-house with a background in litigation than it is for someone more on the transactional side. So I'm curious about your experience starting at Walgreens. You started in the government investigations group. Can you describe what that work was first and then many more questions? (laughs) Sure. So it was called the government litigation group, small group, and we handled, continue to handle without my involvement, mostly lawsuits, investigations relating to allegations in the False Claims Act space, anti-kickback. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if billing to federal healthcare programs, okay. cases of that nature. However, we also handled all the opioid litigation for Walgreens. Okay. So although that was not originally kind of supposed to fall within my orbit, I think pretty soon after joining much of my work involved opioids litigation. And what in that initial shift from firm to in-house, what was different for you in your day to day? So interesting. It was, it was very different and very the same in many ways. So, so I'll start with the same, I guess. 
my role as senior counsel for government litigation was very, I would say, a traditional litigation management role. And so my primary duties were really managing and working with outside counsel on my cases and matters. And so it was similar to my previous practice at McDermott, but just at this higher level where instead of me receiving the nasty ram from opposing counsel, outside counsel receives it. And then (laughs) we talk about the best way to respond. So there were a lot of key similarities there. Differences, it's just, I mean, it's, it's at a higher level. And it's much, a big part of my job was making sure that people higher, higher than me in the organization knew what was going on. I mean, no surprises is a huge one for Mm -hmm. in-house counsel, like managing expectations, making sure that key developments are escalated. A lot of it was about finding the right people for things. So there'd be questions and it's, you play the game of emailing John and John says, oh, I think that's actually for Mary. And then Mary says, you know what, let's loop Shannon into this. So playing that whole game and really, I guess, once again, we'll go back to managing relationships and trying to strike that balance of defending the company's interests in the best way you can without overburdening the business folks that are making the company run every day. And so playing that that delicate role of, of, of trying to be respectful of their time, but also getting what you need takes some finesse, I guess I would say. So there's just different priorities, I would say. Different, Hallie, you know this, you've written a million of these, the, the big research email that you <laughs> that's like eight paragraphs long with all the case citations, like that's, that's done. That's gone. Nobody cares. Yeah. And so distilling that into something that's actually workable and readable and actionable is more of a priority in-house. So, so yeah, there's similar, there were similarities and differences with my in-house role versus my McDonough role. Lisa, I want to back up just for a second to how you actually came to find your in-house role. So Hallie mentioned that there's this perception, and I certainly had this when I was a law firm associate, that like if you go into litigation, going in-house, really more for transactional people, like that's not an exit strategy that litigators have on their plate. And I remember thinking like, I don't even really know what in-house means, but if I wanted to do that, then that's not an option for me. So how did you go about sort of finding the role that you had? And did you have experience that was germane to your initial sort of practice at Walgreens with, you know, anti-kickback and all of that? Like, were you doing those types of cases at McDermott and had that germane experience or was that something you kind of learned on the job? Sure. So I'll answer your second question first and then loop back. So the answer to your second question is yes. McDermott is a absolute powerhouse in the healthcare space. And so a lot of my practice, particularly, I would say the back half last five years or so was in the healthcare space. So I did a a very solid amount of anti-kickback, false claims act, and then just many of my clients were in the healthcare space. So while I would never have considered myself or do consider myself a False Claims Act attorney. I certainly had experience in that area. I had experience really across the the healthcare industry, working with you know many of our our health practice groups clients. So it was a 
pretty natural fit there. Although I will say I had never worked for a, a retail pharmacy, so that was new. Going in-house as a litigator. So I, I would agree. I, I would I would not, I certainly would not say, oh, you can't do it. I, I do think, frankly, it is more difficult to find a in-house litigation role than an in-house transactional role. I, I do think that's reality. And they certainly exist. I mean, I, I would say most large companies all have in-house litigators. So the positions are there. I just think that there's fewer of them. And the way I got my current role was through happenstance. It was one of those things I had been looking at that point for some number of months. And so a couple of my, or some of my friends knew that I was, had some interest in going in house. It was one of those weird things where I think, I don't remember exactly, I think my, my, my supervisor at the time's girlfriend or something worked with a girl I went to law school with, Molly, and then Molly's good friends with my good friend, Caitlin, and, <laughs> you know, they're like it's, it was this whole chain. It was eventually my friend, Caitlin, who forwarded to me this, you know, email, like, oh, they're looking for this person. And I was like, hey, like, that could be a really good fit. So, and, I, and then I interviewed. Um, so it was just one of those random things where the stars aligned, I suppose, and it just made, it was like a, a, a four times forwarded email that landed in my inbox and I applied and did the interview process and got got the gig. So it's using your network, Lisa, which you carefully yeah, really built. Yeah. <laughs> we talk a lot on the podcast about how people actually get jobs because I would say 99% of the time it's not because they saw a listing online and applied. It's because mm-hmm. they either like you did communicated with their friends that they're looking for something or they're out there connecting with people and and people know that their reputation and are willing to pass along good opportunities to them. So that sounds like (laughs) your experience too. And that's a great way to do it. Yeah. Dare I say we're back to the human connection thread. Oh gosh. So yes. (laughs) Love a theme. Love a theme. Okay. So now you are in healthcare compliance at Walgreens and when we ran into each other at Trader Joe's a few months ago, and that sparked this whole experience of having you on the podcast, you told me that being in healthcare compliance is pretty different from what you were doing, not only before at Walgreens, but what you were doing previously at the firm. So would love to hear what your day-to-day is like in that practice and how it's different from what you were doing before. Sure. So yeah, it is super different. And I think ultimately in a in a positive way that I'm really enjoying. But yeah, I mean, the, the senior counsel role in my previous team at Walgreens was was totally in my wheelhouse. I was managing the litigation of similar nature that I previously managed and felt like it was kind of almost an extension of what I had been doing at McDermott, but just at this in-house higher level. Now, I am much more integrated in the business in like the everyday, what we're doing in the healthcare space. It's much less about reviewing briefs or reviewing witness scripts and preparing witness. Like it's, it's the litigation aspect of it is gone. And it's much more about how can we help the business accomplish its goals compliantly? That's really what it is about. And so it's fast moving, it's ever changing, it's 
about also like being up on the substance of what we're doing because we are in the healthcare space and it's heavily regulated and there's and those regulations are often changing so it's being a substantive expert on one hand and then interfacing well with the business on the other so that they know you're a resource come to you as a resource collaborate with you so that the activities that are being carried out are are being done in the best way possible and in a compliant way. And it's it's interesting because it's there's still a very legal nature to it, right? Like we are interpreting laws, but the the compliance aspect I think is much more operational. So we I, I'm no longer providing legal guidance. That's not my role anymore. It's taking legal guidance from our counsel and saying, okay, how do we operationalize this across our business? So there's still, it's not like all of a sudden I've completely lost my legal background, but it's just, I would say it's just much more of a businessy type role, I would say, Mm -hmm. than my previous one. Lisa, what are the skills that you built as a litigator that contribute to what you're doing today? Because it's, you know, you said you're not practicing law kind of in that traditional way that you have been before, but I imagine that there are some skills that you've developed as a litigator that contribute to your being a great in-house counsel. Probably the biggest one that comes to mind is simplifying the complex and being able to sift through the noise and really distill something into the heart of it and the crux of it is very important as outside counsel. It's perhaps even more important as in-house counsel and as a compliance professional. Communication is huge. I mean, all day, every day, it's about communicating. So doing so in a way to coalition build, as one says, and and get the right information to the people who need it, avoid inundating people with information that they don't need. So just kind of like managing the flow of information, I would say, is is another one that I learned as a litigator and that I apply today. And finally, just I, I guess I'll go back to where I started with like the problem solving aspect of it. I mean, that's what you do every day as a litigator is solve problems. And that's still what I do today. And so putting that analytical framework on it, being able to figure out what's what matters, what doesn't, those are all things that you learn as a litigator and that will still be very, very valuable in in the in-house setting, whether it's a traditional in-house litigation role or something adjacent like what I'm doing right now in compliance. That's super helpful for our listeners generally, just law students or young lawyers in terms of like, can they make this jump to an in-house role as a litigator? Like, what are the skills that might be helpful if they are working in a firm that might translate? Do you have other pieces of advice for law students or young associates and those two buckets may be different that you would pass along? We already talked about some big ones. I would say 
oh man, we're really slamming this theme of human connection. And so I feel <laughs> a little bit trite going back to it. But I really will say many of the relationships that I've formed at McDermott continue to be extremely valuable today. And so I think that being very thoughtful about forming those relationships, starting as early as a summer associate, can continue to be important throughout your entire career, or at least so far for me. So I think being your authentic self and really forging those relationships is huge. And I think it'll benefit you, number one, because you're going to enjoy your job more. Number two, you're going to learn more from people who have been doing it longer. And then number three, you're going to get more opportunities down the road from from people who want to help you or just want to stay connected with you. So I think that's a big one. I do think there's a lot of value to starting at a big firm, if that's what you want. If you don't want to do it, if you want to like be a public interest lawyer or many other types of incredibly interesting careers that you can do with a law degree, then then that's great. And don't suffer at a law firm when, when that's not where you want to be. But if you're if you have a interest in private practice, I think it's a great way to work on complex cases, work for sophisticated clients and get some of those experiences that would be more difficult or potentially more difficult to get elsewhere. I think those are my big ones, other than what we've already talked about. Well, you've given a lot of great advice, Lisa, as I knew you would. So as we head into wrapping up this great conversation, I'm curious what success means to you. Success means to me enjoying my job, feeling like I am adding value to my workplace and ideally more broadly beyond that. So making a difference in the world is is something that sounds heady, but, but even doing so in small ways, I think adds a lot of satisfaction and meaning to your work overall. And I think you can do that in any setting, whether it's being involved in a pro bono practice at a law firm, or even just helping a client out of a difficult situation. You know, for you, it's just another lawsuit. For them, it could be worried about the survival of their business. So even helping clients navigate that and making them be able to sleep a little better at night feels good. Or in my current setting, feeling like we could actually really improve healthcare for patients. That's a, that's a big lofty goal, but feeling like you're working towards accomplishing that every day feels like success to me. Mutual respect of your colleagues is a a big one. And feeling like people want you to have a seat at the table and liking being at that table are, are big marks of success for me. I love it. As our last kind of question, and in the vein of human connection, which we are really hammering home here today, you know, you have obviously been very successful in a bunch of different arenas. I think we can both tell that work is a very important piece of your life. But 
in terms of outside interests and things that you might do like outside of work, again, back to human connection, what are some of the things that you like to do just outside of work and, you know, whether that's like family or hobbies or anything that you want to share with us just to give our listeners a little bit more of a sense of of who you are? Sure. So I live in Chicago in the Roscoe Village neighborhood with my husband, who is also a lawyer, and our four-year-old daughter, Mara, and our two-year-old son, Miles. And so as far as what I do outside work, it's mostly hang out with Mara and Miles. Uh, They are a huge handful right now, (laughs) but in in the most adorable way possible. So we, you know, we love living in the city. We go to parks, go to restaurants, go to museums, really try to take in the the remarkable things that Chicago has to offer. So it's really, our, our, our weekends are mostly consumed by kids stuff, but it's, it's fun. Well, Lisa, it's been so fun catching up with you and learning more about you. Thanks for sharing about your journey through the law and your great advice for our listeners. I know that a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. So thanks for your time today. It was great to chat with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Don't go away. There's more to come in the due diligence portion of our show. It is due diligence time for our episode with Lisa Hydostian. It is always really fun to catch up with people that, you know, we haven't been in touch with for a while, or in the case of Lisa, like we worked together, but I didn't necessarily know the reason why she went to law school or, you know, a little bit more about her experiences after I was not at McDermott and why she moved to Walgreens. So it's really cool to have additional insight into her personal life and career and I figured she would be an excellent guest just because she is so focused on mentoring and sharing what she knows with others in a way that's so helpful. So it was fun to have her on. I also think it's fun when you realize that there's a random connection with someone. Like she went to undergrad and law school at Michigan and I taught at Michigan. And so there's always those aspects of things where you're, I was like, I've never met Lisa. Like this will be a really interesting conversation just based on her background and what you'd said about her. And then we were like, wait a minute, like this is cool. So yeah. Small little world. Exactly. Many good people coming from and through Michigan. It's true. It's true. So Hallie, what stuck out to you from this episode that you want to call out? Well, I would say that I think at this point we've kind of demystified the move from a litigation role to an in-house role. And Lisa did a great job of sharing not only what the skills were that she built while she was at a firm, but also how those skills have translated into both of her roles at Walgreens and how there are so many things that you, so many skills that you develop as a litigator that can translate into any number of jobs beyond serving as litigation counsel. 
for a client at a firm or even in-house for a firm. And there are many that Lisa highlighted that I know you all just heard, but I think the communication piece that she emphasized is super important. And of course, harkens back to our (laughs) making human connection theme that we won't continue to talk about because you've heard about it all throughout this episode. But it's cool to see how those skills translate and how people are able to use them and make shifts in their career towards different things. So that was one of the many things that stuck out to me from our conversation with Lisa. What about you, Allison? Yeah, I just want to pick up on that. I really also appreciated that she carried the thread from like her big law experience to how she got the job at Walgreens. And then within Walgreens, even like she switched, as she said, to something that's pretty different than what she was doing. But it was like the development of those skills and getting to know people first at McDermott and then friends of friends of friends, right, who gave Mm -hmm. her that posting. And then... Within Walgreens, she was able to transition to something different even within that particular space. And so Mm -hmm. I think maybe she wouldn't have had the chance to make a jump right to the compliance role. But interesting to know that even when you move in-house as a litigator, there are opportunities within the in-house space that you could take advantage of as well. I don't think I necessarily recognize that. I still was stuck in the mindset of, okay now you've made it to in-house, hooray, as a litigator, but then you're in that one role. But it turns out Mm -hmm. there's actually a lot of different roles that you could potentially have even Mm -hmm. in the same in-house job. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I also just want to call out for our listeners that we have a few other episodes if you are interested in the path of going from litigation to in-house. Amy Chapel, who was on season one, episode six, she went from a big law firm to AbbVie, a pharmaceutical company, and then Abby Mbola Aladakun, who was also in big law and then made her way to Facebook as a litigator. So as Hallie said, I think we are slowly but surely demystifying this idea that you yes. can't go from being a litigator to in-house. We have several episodes with people who have done just that and they have unique paths in the way they got there. So check out those other episodes as well. Great. Well, Allison, I'll see you next time. See you next time. Personal Jurisdiction is powered and distributed by Simplecast. You don't have to wait until next week to hear more. You can find us online at personaljxpod.com and on LinkedIn where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to Personal Jurisdiction on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen so that you can be updated on the latest and greatest from Personal Jurisdiction. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating so that other listeners can find our show too. Reach out to us at personaljxpod at gmail.com if you have questions, feedback, or if you'd like to join us as a guest on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.